So he tells the mayor, tells us, well, the, the new trash trucks won't fit down the alley. Well, wait a minute, why'd you buy them then if they're not gonna fit down the alley? Because you don't understand the design of your own neighborhood. Is this surprising that you don't know the, uh, the purpose of the alley? No, no, no because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Well, well that's going to be, that will impact your ability to, to deal with trash collection, won't it? Because you don't understand what design is, do you? No, you don't. Domestic partners can't be denied their rights no more. We had sex on the men's room floor at the rest stop on Route 294. So you can put me in your 401k4. Hello. Here we are back in South Bend, Indiana, after a productive weekend uh, in the nation's capital. Glad to be back. And over the course of time, the, the discussion which we initiated, at least by, recorded, uh, by recording last week, has developed into something even more significant than it was before. As I said, God has a plan for your life, and God has a plan for human history. And what we're now seeing is the unfolding of that plan. Uh, according to his design. So uh, at the moment, the very moment that we have the biggest uh, environmental catastrophe of our generation unfolding in uh, East Palestine or Palestine or however they pronounce it, uh, Ohio, uh, the president of the United States is missing in action. Actually, he's in the Ukraine trying to drum up support uh, for a failing war by throwing more money at uh, uh, a bottomless pit. Uh, all of those tanks that went there before have all been destroyed. Every single tank that's going to go there again is going to be destroyed, and countries who supply them won't be able to defend themselves. That's what's happening there. That's Joe Biden. And uh, instead of Biden showing up in Ohio, uh, taking the bull by the horns, showing us he's in charge. What he did was uh, open a window of opportunity for Donald Trump, who showed up in Ohio with pallets of water and food. This was a, a, a stroke of genius on Trump's part. Uh, this is the Trump that won the hearts of the people of South Bend, Indiana, uh, when he came here. I was there, the biggest rally in the history of South Bend, Indiana, and uh, the uh, advance man got out there and started talking about this issue, immigrants, nothing happened, nothing happened, and then the guy said, what do you think about carrier air conditioning moving its plant to Mexico? And at that point, everybody jumped up, and there was, uh, that was the issue that galvanized this group of people. You, you, who were these group, who was this group of people? Were they evangelicals? Probably were. They're the people that uh, lived south of South Bend. Uh, they're evangelicals. They're probably Christian Zionists in some sense or other, but when they came to this talk, they were workers. 
That's a category that has disappeared from our vocabulary. It used to be a, it, it, during the beginning, the early years, up to the mid-years of the 20th century, it was one of the most important categories of discourse, in not only in America, but in every Europe, in, uh, in every country in Europe. Uh, the group that uh, uh, stole that term were the communists, and they created workers' paradises all over the world uh, that were uh, hell on earth as opposed to heaven on earth, largely because they were created by the Jewish avant-garde of communism, uh, which took over Russia in 1917. The worker uh, is a category of reality that has been treated with contempt ever since the arrival of Ronald Reagan on the scene. The first thing that Ronald Reagan did when he took office was attack the unions, in particular the traffic controllers union, to set an example for an administration that held work in contempt. Labor, as I have said many times before, is the source of all value. There is only one other option and it's not the real option, and that option is usury. There are only two options in economic life, labor and usury. Labor is the Catholic option, and usury is the Jewish option, because Shylock said he can get his ducats to copulate faster than Laban's ewes and rams. Donald Trump is like the broken clock that gets, that gets it right twice a day, and he got it right in Ohio. He showed up at exactly the right moment. He resuscitated. He's now a player. He's now back in the game because he, this is the source of this issue. The main issue facing us today is the America First issue. Are we going to continue to throw money away um, to, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars to another failed Jewish project, another failing Jewish war, thanks to people like Anthony Blinken and Victoria Newland and the Jew Zelensky who's in charge of the Ukraine, who is now going to collaborate with Larry Fink of BlackRock, they are going to engage in a looting operation of the Ukraine. My dental technician is a Ukrainian, and she told me that everyone over there is now, the Ukrainians are now being told to leave. Leave the Ukraine. What we're not hearing is that this war is also an ethnic cleansing operation where the Jews in charge are using the attack, the Russian incursion into the Ukraine as an excuse to empty that country out so that Larry Flink, Fink and BlackRock and Jamie Dimon and Goldman Sachs can all come in and buy up those distressed assets for pennies on the dollar. That's exactly what happened after the fall of communism when the Soviet Union collapsed. Jeffrey Sachs led a looting operation for the Jewish oligarchs and the, the wealth of the Russian nation ended up in the hands of seven Jews. There's going to be a replay of that type of thing, and the man who understood the moment and was able to act on it was Donald Trump. Now, the man who uh, 
ended up representing the Biden administration was none other than our illustrious former mayor, Pete Buttigieg. Once again, he got caught by surprise. He's been doing nothing but getting caught by surprise ever since he entered office. It was the supply chain thing. That, that caught him by surprise. And he kind of rushed in after the fact and said, yeah, yeah, we're dealing with that. And then it was the airline debacle where the computers are failing. And then he kind of, after it, you know, after that happens, he, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're right here. And then finally this thing, he shows up 20 days late. 20 days after the catastrophe, uh, wearing his uh, Lego construction worker uniform, uh, walking around, claiming that he's in charge, and then turning the whole thing around, blaming everything on Donald Trump. This is something that we have, could expect. First of all, what did, what, why, why can we expect this? Because as I said, uh, it's five years ago I said it, this is a man who doesn't understand that there is a design to the universe. And he doesn't understand that because he's a homosexual. If you, if you, if you, if you do understand that there is a design to the human sex organ, you would not be a homosexual because what you're doing is abusing that design. Now, he's the kind of guy who says, hey, this is not going to affect my ability to do my job. He said that repeatedly in South Bend, Indiana. Well, here it is. It's proof that it affects your ability to do this job because you can't understand what's going on because you can't understand that everything has a purpose to life. And you can't understand that because you're deliberately thwarting the purpose of human sexuality and making a mockery of it, but first of all, by uh, claiming to be married, which is impossible, and then secondly, uh, aggravating, doubling down on that lie by an even greater lie, which is to claim that you can have children. Pete bought those children. This is human trafficking. This is the type of aberration that our toleration of homosexuality is enabling. And because of that, uh, you think that reality is what you say it is because truth is the opinion of the powerful. And so if the powerful say that two men can marry each other and they can have children, then you better get with the program. Now, there's a large group of people out there who are not with the program and that begins pretty much on the west bank of the Hudson River, and it goes all the way uh, to Las Vegas. A large group of people in the center of the country who did not vote for Trump, did not vote for uh, Biden, who voted for Trump, and now Trump has come back to their rescue. I hope that Donald Trump learned his lesson from Benjamin Netanyahu, the way he was treated by Benjamin Netanyahu after doing everything within his power to give the Israelis whatever they wanted, you know, embassy, whatever, whatever, you know? And then what do they do? Uh, Netanyahu, uh, 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 even worse than that, the releasing the traitor, Jonathan Pollard, who then flies to Israel is greeted on the tarmac by Benjamin Netanyahu, the greatest traitor in American history, makes 
makes Benedict Arnold look like Mary Poppins by comparison. And he's greeted by Benjamin Netanyahu on the tarmac and, and then uh, with open arms. And then two weeks later, he gives a speech. Pollard gives a speech in which he says, it's the duty of every Jew to, port to betray the country he lives in in the interest of Israel. Was Donald Trump listening when that happened? Did he learn the lesson that this country is learning in the expensive school of experience, which is that you can't allow the Jews to run your country? If you do, there will be catastrophe, and we are watching catastrophe on all fronts right now. Domestic politics, the woke agenda, which is sponsoring uh, Drag Queen Story Hour as the cutting edge of, let's say, grooming for pedophilia. When uh, Drag Queen Story Hour uh, arrived in South Bend, Indiana, at one of the libraries, the Proud Boys showed up, didn't do anything, they just showed up, and it, it caused such consternation that they had to call in the local TV station to talk about it. And at that point, they went to their expert on this type of situation. Guess who that was? It was the local representative of the Anti-Defamation League. What were the Jews? What were the Jews doing defending Drag Queen Story Hour? Well, it's very simple. They defend every single movement, every single revolutionary movement, every single movement that is determined to engage in moral subversion because of their rebellion against Logos, which I've described in detail in my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. So now Pete shows up. He doesn't know, understand uh, what a, a service alley is for. And so now every single member, every single citizen in South Bend, Indiana, now works for the trash company. We have to drag our trash cans down the slope in the snow, uh, put it out, and then drag them back. And before that, we had uh, a trash truck that went down the alley behind our my garage, and there were two you you guys, usually black guys, who earned a decent city wage by emptying the trash cans, uh, and. Uh, allowed that allowed them to support families whether they did that or not they were they the salary would allow that and uh, that went back into the economy and that wasn't good enough we had to have mechanized trash cans that means we're now all working for the trash company he didn't understand a service alley because he's a homosexual and doesn't understand that the anus is not a sex organ and now we have this man in charge of transportation in the united states of america Okay, that's bad enough, but then you add to that the other uh, layer of bad news, which is this homosexual narcissism. Okay, the world is catching on, the news media is catching on. It's all about Pete. Everything is about Pete. Everything is a, a way of preparing him for running for president of the United States of America uh, in the next election. Uh, everything is about fulfilling his homosexual, narcissistic fantasies of himself. This is a man who has real difficulty seeing outside of this narcissistic bubble that homosexuality has created for him. And so as a result, it's not surprising 
that it took him 20 days to register the fact that we just had a huge uh, catastrophe uh, in Ohio that was created by uh, faulty transportation, faulty rail transportation. Once he realized it, he immediately started to shift the blame, shift the blame to Donald Trump, uh, and then it became, well, who's weakening regulations and so on and so forth. This is what you get. This is what you get when you have a culture that promotes the hiring of commissars, okay? People who are not competent for the job, no matter how many degrees they have from Oxford and Harvard, they don't understand that there is a purpose to everything in life because of the way they live. As a result, they can't understand transportation. As a result of the fact they can't understand transportation, the airlines get worse, and we have uh, environmental catastrophes on the railroads. That's my rant. Uh, we can now have the discussion that we did not have last week. All right, uh, Mike Bajak is here, Dr. Jones' assistant. Uh, earlier, Dr. Jones mentioned Buttigieg and the Lego guy. Let me just kind of put that up there. That's what he's talking about. Just, I'll, I'll leave this up here while I read the rules for you guys. Uh, <clears throat> all right, so uh, call-ins are made via our Telegram channel. For you guys who don't know, the link should be in the description. It's for you guys and Cozy. Um, later in the stream, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to call on people who raise their hand in Telegram, and then near the end of the stream, we'll take some uh, texts from uh, Cozy. And there are no super chats required. It's all open chat. Try to keep uh, to one question. Try to, try to keep on subject and be respectful of time. And Dr. Jones, if, if I could really quickly take the first question. Uh, homosexuality, you said, is caused by father deprivation. Uh, could you describe uh, Buttigieg's father and, and what he was up to and his, his kind of manipulations and relationship to communism? Yeah, so... Uh uh, I, I, I met uh, Pete's father when he first arrived here. I was still a professor at uh, St. Mary's College at that point. I was introduced to a new professor at Notre Dame, and his name was Joe Budijic. And he was a, um, uh, English. English. I'm in the English department of St. Mary's. He's in the English department at Notre Dame. We're introduced by an English professor. And so we get into a discussion, and here's a guy who just looks at everyone with contempt. Uh, yours truly uh, being part of that thing. I just felt that this is an incredibly arrogant guy. But he had a secret. He had secret knowledge, and the secret knowledge was basically uh, revolved around the notebooks of Antonio Gramsci. Uh, the man, he was a, a communist uh, during the 1920s, was imprisoned by Mussolini during this period. And while he was in prison, he wrote these notebooks. And the notebooks were basically, how do you take over a conservative culture. Uh, it was a revision of Marxism because Marx had said uh, that you need to take over the means of production. Gramsci is saying, no, the culture is more important than the means of production. And at that point, you had the beginning of uh, the culture wars, uh, the subversion uh, of traditional cultures. Now, Gramsci had Italy in mind, but Notre Dame was a conservative culture. Catholic culture, just like Italy, and he understood the grammar of subversion. And it got him, uh, it rewarded him way beyond what his achievements were. So he's a man who never uh, never wrote a book as a professor. The only book uh, by Joe Budishis in the library is his warmed-over 
doctoral dissertation on James Joyce. It was about modernism. I mean, talk about wear, showing up at the fashion show wearing a leisure suit. This is what Joe Budishish's uh, book was. But he became the editor of the Gramsci uh, notebooks. And by doing that, he understood, he internalized what his master said, and he understood how to undermine the uh, status, uh, the, the, the Notre Dame University, the Catholic nature of the university. He had a lot of help from Father Hesburgh. And Rose ended up uh, being having an endowed chair for doing nothing, no books, one book, nothing. He understood the workings, and he worked the system to his advantage. Now, Pete wrote an auto biography, uh, a kind of campaign autobiography. And during that time, he talked about basically how he used to sit at the dining room table when his father and all of the left-wing professors there would get together and talk. This was Pete's education. This is how he learned about how to subvert things uh, from the inside, how to ride subversive movements to positions of power. And the subversive movement he chose was the one closest to his heart, which is homosexuality, which became a subversive movement during the 1970s, uh, part, of, part of that agenda. The other side of the coin is, so he had that. He, everything, he owes everything to his father, and the problem is including his homosexuality. Okay, homosexuality, in case you didn't know this, you're not born a homosexual. No one is born that way. It doesn't, it's not a, a result of your DNA. It's a result of your relationship to your father. Okay, if your father is distant, if you feel that he's distant, uh, if your mother is filling in the gap of your father's, uh, what you feel your father's affection, you're going to have father deprivation. You're going to feel that you're inadequate. And at a certain point, uh, there are people, uh, other hold, older homosexuals, who understand this, and they will target you. That whole operation at uh, Penn State uh, with that guy Sandusky was basically using the psychology department at Penn State to target uh, young people with father deprivation so he could seduce them. So the question then is... Uh, was, was, was Pete seduced by one of these professors at Notre Dame? Because that's always how it happens. These, this, this desire for affirmation that you didn't get from the father, suddenly you have this uh, attention from uh, an older man who c could be a surrogate father, substitute father, uh, but then it gets sexualized with a seduction, and suddenly you're caught in an operation where you become a kind of vampire. Uh, vampire being someone who has to suck life from someone else because of his internal uh, emptiness. That's what he was. That's where it came from. That's the ambivalence at the heart of this guy's life. That's what's been inflicted on us. Why are we, why are we being subjected to this psychodrama, you know, that's going to lead to econo uh, ecological catastrophes? Well, because the Democratic Party has designated the homosexual as one of its most loyal constituents. So I said before, the other loyal constituent that we can talk about is feminism, which is women. And I've talked about this before. Uh, abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Abortion is a Jewish sacrament. And more than that, it is the Jewish 
sacrament of initiation for women, in particular Catholic women. This is how Catholic women become Jews. And we know they're Jews because they vote like Jews. The analogy here is that homosexuality is the Jewish sacrament of initiation for men. And so between these two cadres you now have, you add a little critical race theory, which is also a Jewish theory, and now you've got a, a, a regime imposed on us which promotes people who are incompetent to rule over us. One of the crucial areas where this is happening is the airlines. And Tucker Carlson just did a show about affirmative action. An airlines, black guy, kind of, you know, family man, good Christian guy, but he couldn't fly an airplane, unfortunately. And But he got promoted uh, in spite of his inability. And the result was that that plane crashed and people died. People are dying for the gay disco. That's the situation we're in. Wherever you look, people are dying for the gay disco. Ukraine, airlines, Palestine, uh, Ohio, people are dying because this regime has, of incompetent narcissists has been imposed on America uh, by the Biden administration, by the people who are in power. And we are all suffering. And Trump was supposed to do something about this, but Trump, uh, unfortunately, didn't understand that the Jews are behind all of these revolutionary movements. Feminism, homosexuality, uh, uh, immigration, weaponized immigration, the wars uh, in uh, Iraq, in the Ukraine. Wherever you look, they're the people that he's trying to placate. And so he was an ineffective president because he couldn't understand that fundamental fact. Now, I am a firm believer that people should learn from their mistakes, but I also understand that what Ben Franklin said is true. Experience keeps an expensive school, but fools will learn in no other. So God bless Trump for showing up in Ohio, but we're, the, the jury is still out whether we learn in the expensive school of experience that you can't appoint Jews to run your country for you. All right, let's jump to that uh, Telegram chat there. Uh, who is up first? Let's see. Asectic Astronomy. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, C-Tech Astronomy. C -tech. That's actually a reference to the movie Sneakers. Anyway, um, Dr. Jones, long time, first time. So it's a pleasure to get to ask you a question. Um, not to get too apocalyptic, but I mean, you look at all these train derailments, you look at the regime we have now, you look at the World Health Organization's push to have their pandemic treaty and have autonomy over all the nations. You look at the red heifers arriving in Israel. I mean, where are we? Just in your opinion. I know no man knows the day or the hour, but just in your educated opinion. Yeah, you're right. The times are apocalyptic, but... On the other hand, on the other hand, I think we can say for certain that we're experiencing the end of the American empire. And the end of empires is always uh, a dangerous uh, apocalyptic time. Uh, St. Jerome uh, saw, uh, uh, witnessed the battle, uh, didn't witness, but I knew about the battle of Adrianople. Uh, he couldn't conceive of a world that wasn't ruled by the Roman Empire. That world went down. 
And they, the people living at that time thought it was the end of the world. And it was, in a sense, as we say here, the end of the world as we know it. We're experiencing the same thing here. God has appointed Joe Biden to bring about the end of the American empire. That is his task. He, he, he is going to bring it about through his arrogance, his stupidity, and his dementia. He is, a, he is a, a tool of God right now. And what we need to do is to pray for some type of, uh, some type of wholesome outcome, some type of good outcome. Now, whether it's the end of the world, if it's the end of the world, uh, if, as everyone knows it, if Jesus Christ is going, that means that Jesus Christ is going to come, and if Jesus Christ is going to come, you better get your house in order. So the great, the benefit here is that this type of crisis leads to soul searching, and soul searching can lead you back to your relationship with God if you broke it off. This is happening all the time. I get letters every week, uh, people saying, you know, I listened to you and I went back to church or I listened to you when I got baptized. That's, that's the upside. That is the positive side of moments like this. It, if, if it weren't for suffering, if it weren't for suffering, we'd never pay any attention to God. Suffering is part of God's plan. That's what we need to know, and that's what's going to get us through these times. Thank you, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. Next, we have GBoss88. Go ahead. Hey, Dr. Jones, um, thank you for um, having us all here. Um, I'm going to make this question quick. Um, honestly, like in my like searching of the JQ, like I've been really like focused on the cultural aspects of things, but not really on the economic part. So my question to you is, which books would you personally recommend as a person who's been into these uh, type of stuff? Which books would you recommend to understand Jewish usury, if that makes any sense? Yes, Baron Metal. I wrote this book after the last economic crisis, the conf capitalism as the conflict between labor and usury. It, I did this book basically to, to promote the ideas of Heinrich Pesch, one of the great uh, uh, eco economists of the 20th century. And I did it because to also to return economics to its proper matrix, which is philosophy. Economics is a branch of moral philosophy. This is why Adam Smith was hired to teach at the University of Edinburgh. Moral, economics is moral philosophy. The one thing that it is not is physics. It's not pseudo, it is pseudophysics, but it's not physics. So you don't have to be a nuclear physicist to understand economics. I go through all of these things in that book. So I'm recommending uh, Baron Metal. Uh, you can get it at culturewars.com or fidelitypress.org. Next, we have Servium. Uh, Servium. 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 All right, go ahead. Uh, hello, Dr. Jones. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Fantastic. Um, I just have a question just regarding, I guess, um, touching on what uh, the first speaker talked about, um, the, I guess, all the chemical fires and all the um, uh, oil, I guess, refineries going up in smoke. 
is do you think it's a coordinated effort in, in some sense um, I, to bring down the infrastructure of the United States? I have no evidence to support that. Uh, it could be, but I don't have the evidence. To, I can't, can't prove it. Uh, so in the absence of any type of proof, I'll just have to assume that it's, uh, there are natural causes. So the natural causes would be simply, uh, let's go to the uh, airlines, uh, the Southwest Airlines. What happened there? <clears throat> the cause of that problem is capitalism. The cause of, me, of many of these problems, I could say the, the rail line thing as well, is capitalism. Why do I say that? Because capitalism is state-sponsored usury. And so what happens here is, uh, just take the airlines. When I, in the 1970s, I don't know whether you were flying then, but you could fly anywhere in the United States, and I mean anywhere, for about $50. Okay, uh, it was a great system. I, 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 they should have preserved the rail system, but it was great. And so what happened? It was called the deregulation of the airline industry. What does that mean? That means that Reagan allowed uh, the Jewish vulture capitalists uh, from New York City to basically engage in the leverage buyouts of the airlines. What does that mean? What that means is basically you come up with this money okay, from junk bonds or something like that, uh, you buy a, an airline, which is a utility, which is there to serve the public, and you treat it like a cash cow. You load that airline down with debt, you skim off the top, your fees, which are, uh, uh, this debt is a crippling debt, okay, and now the airline is struggling to repay it, and then you start cutting out workers and cutting out uh, capital improvement because you want that money. This is a cash cow, it's not a utility. And so as a result, the airline goes belly up and one after one, they go belly up. And then the ones that don't are involved in flying you either to Las Vegas or Disney World uh, or any some other profitable thing and gouging you uh, when you get there, oh, oh the, you have to, you have a, a, a wallet in your pocket. Well, that costs you five dollars extra, and your suitcase is too heavy, so that's going to be another fifty dollars, and so on and so forth. They wrecked it. Capitalism wrecked the airlines. Capitalism uh, is a curse on this country because it's state-sponsored usury. The state is behind this usury, and we know the masters of usury have always been historically the Jews, and so it led to the Jewish control of our country. That's the way I see it. You don't need a, if there's a conspiracy, that's the conspiracy we need to talk about. Great, thanks Dr. Jones. You're welcome. God bless. Elros, you are not, uh, up next. Go ahead. All right, can you hear me? I can. Well, Dr. Jones, a pleasure to speak to you again. We've uh, spoken a couple times before. Um, as I've mentioned before, I'm a, I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, and uh, just about a week ago, I attended my first Orthodox divine liturgy. Um, this is an Antiochian Orthodox church. Um, the, uh, the attendants are, or the parishioners are um, predominantly Syrian in ethnicity. And uh, after the divine liturgy, I uh, spoke to the archdeacon there um, this is an older guy, um, very kind of eccentric and um, zealous for his faith. And, you know, as soon as I start talking to him, um, even though he's a friendly guy, 
uh, as soon as uh, he learns I'm a Roman Catholic, he immediately begins trying to convert me. Um, now, I, I find, I, I've been interested in ecumenism and dialogue with the Orthodox for a long time now, and I still believe that ecumenism unto the end of reunification uh, between the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches is of paramount importance, certainly perhaps in the face of uh, geopolitical difficulties that we see right now, um, to speak nothing of the, uh, the spiritual uh, significance. So my question to you, Dr. Jones, is um, do you think that um, Catholic Orthodox dialogue is of any great importance at all? Uh, and if so, would you have any particular kind of advice to give me if I'm going to enter into uh, any kind of protracted dialogue with this uh, Syrian Orthodox Archdeacon? Well, I, I, I've partic participated in uh, Catholic Orthodox dialogue. The uh, Orthodox group invited me to speak at two of their conferences, uh, and I've always enjoyed talking to these people. Uh, but <clears throat> I, I, don't, I don't go into these things as a representative of the Catholic Church. I guess I am a representative of the Catholic Church. I don't have any office in the church, but I am. I gave a talk uh, in, the talk I gave in West Virginia this past uh, year was, uh, this past fall actually, was uh, on the dangers of beauty. And uh, I brought up this point about uh, Giotto, uh, as Vasari said, breaking with Greek models. There's a dynamism to the Catholic Church that, that you don't find in, in Orthodox churches. There's an ethnocentrism in the you know, Orthodox churches that uh, uh, precludes a kind of universality. They become state churches. Uh, the, these are the problems that I've seen, I've, I've seen with these. I, I was... Uh, orth another Orthodox group came to me. They liked uh, my book, uh, Dionysus Rising. They invited me to the. Uh, uh, they, they become Bulgarian Orthodox. They were they were uh, largely Protestants, but there were a few Catholics there who who joined, signed up. The Protestants seem to be attracted to uh, the liturgy because they come from uh, sex denominations that are liturgically impoverished, and so they they like that uh, elaborate Orthodox liturgy. Uh, but uh, so they invited me to their national convention, which was good. But it, it turns out that they're, you know, in order to become Bulgarian Orthodox, you you don't you don't have to become a Bulgarian. But there are a large group of people there who are Bulgarians, who see this as their their ethnic home. So this is this is not this is not the will of God. <laughs> The split in the church is not the will of God, and you can say that the Catholic Church has suffered from their contribution, but you could also say, I think, that the Orthodox have suffered by their, their ethnocentrism. So in terms of Catholic dialogue, Catholic Orthodox dialogue, my, my son, my oldest son went to Vladivostok to help build the church. This was the Catholic Church in Vladivostok. It was built by the Czech railroad workers who built the Trans-Siberian Railroad. It wasn't a, a proselytizing effort where Catholics converted uh, uh, Orthodox. And yet there was a, the priest there told me that there is this unremitting hostility uh, against them from the Orthodox priest who basically told one Orthodox priest, told the Father Dan that we'd rather have Moonies here than Catholics. 
So it's simply a fact of life, you know. You're, you're going to have to face up with this. I could say be better, you know, my experience with Iranians. I had a lot more uh, experience dialoguing with Iranian Muslims than I have with uh, the Orthodox. And it basically, the, the, what unites us is Logos. And what unites us is the truth. And so just stay on, stay on point, talk about the truth, talk about reality, talk about the reality that we live in. You will find, I think, that if you talk about the Jewish question, you'll find a sympathetic uh, audience among, the, among these people. But uh, all of us, in a sense here, are citizens of the United States, and all of us need to work out some type of modus vivendi uh, so that we can live together and preserve the moral and social order. And that's, that's where I would uh, talk about it. If they want to go deeper, you know, there are lots of ways to talk about it. But there are also people out there who are Catholics, ex-Catholics, who have converted to orthodoxy, who have turned this whole thing into a polemical issue and have challenged me to debates and things like that. I'm not going to do it. I don't really, this is an apostolic church. We should heal this schism. It's not like Protestantism, which is basically going out of existence as we speak after 500 years. And these people are literally uh, sheep without a shepherd and they need to be invited into the Catholic church at this crucial moment. It's a different situation with the Orthodox. Well, thanks very much, Dr. Jones, and God bless you. Thank you. Next, we have Lamilicious. Go ahead. Hey, hello, Dr. Jones. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I just had a quick question that's uh, really not related. I just wanted to see how your process of when you're reading a book, you know, presumably when you read a book, you're probably doing it for a research project, for a book upcoming, or maybe you're reading a book for your own personal edification. But the reason why I'm asking is uh, I, I had met Father Harden in the 1990s, and Father Harden said that uh, every book that he reads, he outlines. And I was wondering if you approach books that you read, either you know for your edification for or for a next project. Well, what's your? Uh, I mean, how do you go about it? Do, do you outline? Do you? What, what's the process that you when you're sitting down to read a book? Thank you. Uh, in my personal writing, the outline comes after you read the book. The outline comes uh, after you've read several read several books. Now the the problem here is you ha if you if you're getting an ex a large project and you do a lot of reading you're going to have to be able to control the information and so you have to take notes when you read a book. So back back way in the antediluvian era when I was writing my doctoral dissertation that meant r taking out index cards and you write down little notes on your index card. The great change that took place then was the computer, uh, where you could sit there and uh, basically type in notes as you're, as you're doing. You have to do this if you're going to make use of this information. Now, sometimes I start off uh, just reading a book out of curiosity for entertainment, but as soon as I see some type of angle here that could turn into a story, I start taking notes. So you take the notes on the computer. One of the great advances in this regard, in terms of simplifying this, is Kindle. So you get the book in electronic form, you get it on the reader, and then you can just go out, uh, 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 highlight it with your finger, and then it will download those notes. Now, this, this leads to other problems. 
So when you're writing it down on index cards, you just get tired after a while, and it sort of naturally limits it to the stuff that is most important, hopefully. Whereas this way, you can assemble huge amounts of information, and then when it comes to the outlining form, you will get indigestion because your mind, your mind has to digest all of this material. This is, Coleridge talked about this as the esemplastic function of the mind. The mind can unify. The mind can create unity in diversity. The name for that in art is called beauty. But it's the same thing when you're doing any type of research for a book. Your mind has to master all of this material and no one else can do it for you. And if it's a lot of material, it's going to take, uh, what should I say, uh, a lot of thinking, a lot of, uh, that's where the outline comes in. It's when you start to put this together. And so I've started books, I, like uh, I started uh, writing uh, Monsters from the Id uh, before the outline was clear. And then I got into it and got into a jam, uh, and then I suddenly realized, oh, this is the way it is, and I finally broke it down into three monsters, three revolutions, uh, th three uh, periods in, in history. That came after the fact. It took me a little longer. But generally, generally uh, the outline begins as a historical, uh, basically a historical list. The dates, and once you put the dates together, uh, history, the reality of history, will lead to the formation of categories. So in this, I'm, I'm trying to be uh, Thomistic, as I said in The Dangers of Beauty. I don't want to impose categories um, on the material I read. I want the, the categories to emerge from the material I'm reading. And that leads to, I think, a, a better book, one that is more faithful to to reality. Oh, excellent advice. I appreciate it very much. And uh, I was holding back on getting a Kindle. I'm very much attached to hard books and paperbacks. But if you can do it with a Kindle at your age, then uh, no no excuse for me. I guess I'll go out and get the Kindle and start doing what you said. Yes. Thank you very much. Kindle, please send me some money for, as a matter of fact, Kindle, I have a request for you. Why did you ban me from, why did you ban my eBooks? This is an outrage. Uh, so put me back on Kindle. Uh, don't let the Jews run your business. Take a lesson from Adidas. Uh, stand up to these people and turn it into the platform that it needs to be. Okay, uh, thanks for all the calls, guys. Uh, we're going to jump to questions now. So, Cozy, you start, start lining up your good questions. Try to at me if you can. It helps me easier to <clears throat> notice them in the chat. I'm going to hit one or two from Telegram and then jump to Cozy. All right. Telegram question from uh, Mond. Uh, question, EMJ, you have spoken uh, a lot on Islam, but what is your take on Buddhism? There are many upper-class uh, liberal types that are picking up on Buddhism, namely the tantric branch of Buddhism. It seems to be taking the world by inf of uh, influence by storm. Uh, are you familiar with the latest tantra branch of Buddhism? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, Buddhism, I don't think, is, is a religion. I think it's a philosophy. I think it's bound up with the reform, trying to reform uh, Hinduism. Uh, uh, I, 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 what I've seen is that it becomes a substitute for people who 
uh, can't give. Uh, now I'm talking about people. I'm not talking about people who are raised in places like Tibet. I'm talking about Americans uh, uh, who can't give up their their vices, but still want some type of aura of spirituality. And I'm speaking specifically here of people like Jack Kerouac, Catholic boy, uh, who could never. Uh, get his drinking under control. Uh, I'm also talking about Thomas Merton, uh, who had uh, problems of the sexual sort. Uh, the, the, these were uh, distractions. I don't, I don't think that they, the Buddhism helped anybody uh, in this regard. Uh, the other thing is that uh, you can be, uh, the Jews have a tendency of taking over Buddhism. And so they're called Jubus, and uh, you can be a Jew. You can't, once you become a, a Catholic, once you get baptized, you can no longer call yourself a Jew, but you can be a Buddhist and a Jew. So at this point, uh, uh, I, I, just, I just find it difficult to take the thing seriously, and that's why I haven't devoted a lot of attention to it. Now, I know I'm going to get angry comments for that, but you asked me the question, and that's an honest, the honest answer that I'm trying to give you. All right, we're, hit, we're hitting a lot of religious questions here. Uh, went from Orthodox to Buddhism, now from post no bills on Cozy. What are the best arguments you would use to convert an Islam, or Muslim, that is? Now, this is a serious, first of all, uh, you, you're talking about a project that is close to my heart right now. I spent today uh, working on a, a speech that I hope to give in Iran. Um, now I am talking about I, I don't have I don't have really any contacts with Sunni Islam, but I've had a lot of contact with Iran, which is the the Shia version of Islam, uh, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And uh, the image that I came up with now this is this is peculiar to Iran. Iran was a an ancient culture; it's two thousand five hundred years old. Uh, it was a thousand years old when the Arabic conquest took place. And as a result, uh, that Islam and Iran and Persia have had a kind of unique and I would say uncomfortable uh, relationship. So when I was in Golestan, I met with the Ayatollah Shahrud. First thing out of his mouth is basically how bad the Saudis are. So that, that Arab-Persian conflict is still alive, uh, uh, manifested in the Sunni-Shia split, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying that. But basically, you're talking about a situation where, again, no matter who you talk to, talk about reality. Talk about the reality of the situation. Don't come into this discussion with preformed categories. Obviously, we all need categories, okay? But don't try, try to find out, try to derive your categories from the experience rather than imposing platonic forms on uh, uh, chaotic nature. So, what, so let, let's go take a step back to the time when there were parts of the world that had never met each other. Uh, take a guy like uh, St. Francis Xavier, the Jesuit, who was the missionary to Asia. How are you going to talk to people? You show up. How are you going to talk to people? He showed up. His body is now in Goa. I was there. There were Muslim ladies and there were Hindu ladies you know, praying to St. Francis Xavier, to the body. They were talking about it. 
uh, he stayed in India for about nine months and just threw up his hands and said, I'm out of here. I, I can't talk to people that have 33 million gods. And then he went to Japan. Now, what did he talk about? What are you going to talk about when you show up in Japan? Well, you're going to talk about Logos because that's the only thing we have in common with the Japanese. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, you're going to have to learn your, their language because otherwise you can't talk to them. So what was one of the first things he talked about? He talked about stars. Brought a telescope, brought an astrolabe, and started talking about the stars because they were interested in the stars too, and he came up with a better calendar. The same thing happened to uh, St. Francis uh, was always on the move, and he realized that Japan is a uh, kind of adjunct of uh, Chinese culture, and he thought, well, I'm going to go to Japan. So he had some human traffic or basically some snakehead drop him off on an island off the coast of uh, China, and someone was supposed to pick him up. The guy never picked him up, and he died there, never making it to China. The man who did make it to China was Matteo Ricci, another heroic Jesuit, one of the greatest, most heroic group of people in the history of the world. Unfortunately, their descendants are, are not that way. But uh, back to Matteo Ricci, what's he do? He has to learn Chinese. And when he learns Chinese, he writes a book in, in, in the, their language, which is now one of the great classics of Chinese literature. And then he starts talking about the heavens. And you, he came up with a better calendar. And once you come up with a better calendar, everybody recognizes that fact. And they're saying, well, you're in contact with reality. You're in contact with Logos. And if you understand the Logos of the heavens, maybe you can talk about the Logos of the heart. And that's, I think, the approach that we have to take in talking to anyone. And that's the approach that I have taken when I've talked to the Iranians. And I found that they have been receptive to what I had to say. And so I think there's a possibility for a dialogue. I had this dialogue with this Iranian woman over the internet. I never met her in person. And I said, what we need to have is unprotected intercourse. Just Let's just be open to the truth. Let's just be open to reality. Let's be open to Logos. Now, there was a historical precedent here, and it was the Magi. Now, these are Persians. I mean, one of them was black, but he, they all were coming from Yemen, which was a, a, a Persian province at that point. Now, they spent their lives studying the Logos of the universe, particularly astronomy. Well, they knew that there was order to the universe, unlike Pete Buttigieg. They knew that there was some type of relationship between God and that order of the universe, and they were prepared because for something that was completely out of the ordinary, which was a new star appeared. Now, because they had subordinated their lives to Logos, they had the courage to follow the star. And when they followed the star, they ended, that star took them to the Logos incarnate. I'm telling the Iranians, or everyone who's listening, that's what's going to happen. If you subordinate yourself to Logos, you will be led to the Logos incarnate. And at that point, you're going to have to make a decision because this is something new. So those magi at that point, it's like me, I talked about this story before, me on the bridge. I'm taking a walk. It's May, the river's high. 
And then suddenly I'm crossing the LaSalle Street Bridge and this woman comes up to me and she said, do you have a cell phone? I said, no, I don't. She said, well, I'm going to kill myself. And she hopped over the railing and was ready to jump into the raging St. Joe River. So what am I going to do? Well, the answer is Logos. I stood there for a moment and I was looking at her. I could have reached her. I thought, I think I'll grab her pants, okay? And I thought, that's polyester that's going to rip off. She'll go in the river. She'll die. And so I couldn't use physical force. I had to use Logos. And I said, God has a plan for your life. And then I said a prayer. And then lo and behold, she gets back, comes back, climbs over the bridge, gets in the cop car, and disappears. That's what's happening. Okay, so the same thing happened to the Magi. You're following the star, okay? I was completely predetermined by God to show up at that river on exactly that moment. That was God's predestination. I had nothing to do with it. If I had left five minutes earlier, if she had left five minutes earlier or later, I would have walked past and she would have jumped in the river. But God didn't want her to jump in the river because God does not like suicide. And so he appointed me to go there and save her. Okay, I'm not trying to make myself into a big hero. I'm trying to talk about the immutable plan of God that is ruling our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have freedom. Now, the Muslims have problems with this freedom thing, free will thing. I knew a guy, I met a guy in Iran who told me his father's friend believed completely in predestination, so he'd walk right into traffic. Well, guess what happened? He got hit by a car. So what happened here is you come, you're predestined to show up on that bridge at that moment in time, but then you've got free will. And so I could have said to the lady, honey, I'm busy. I have to get my cardio workout and walk past. And she could have just said, I'm going to kill myself. And she could have jumped in the river. It came down to free will. That's exactly what happened with the Magi. Who's the first man they bump into? It's Herod. Herod says, oh, who's this new king of the Jews? I'd like to go worship him. Well, Herod was a liar, like most politicians. And the Iranians, uh, the Magi, the, could have said, um, hmm, I'll bet you if we tell him where the new king is, he'll give us a lot of gold, and we will have political preference and blah, blah, blah. So they could have betrayed Jesus Christ. They could have betrayed the Logos incarnate. The temptation was there, but they didn't. And they went and they worshipped. They were the first non-Hebrews to worship the Logos incarnate. I'm saying this is the plan. The plan is that there is a Logos out there that can be apprehended by the mind. And if you follow that Logos sincerely, and if you're dedicated more to the truth than you are to money and power, and all of the other things that can divert you, you will be led to the Logos incarnate, and then you'll have to make a choice. You'll have to make a decision. It's different. It's not Platonism. You can't think your way to heaven. Plato tried that. Augustine tried it. It didn't work. I give an analogy I just was happened to me. If you're heading east on the Ohio Turnpike, Route 80. In order to stay on Route 80, you have to get off at a certain exit. That's what happens in human history. 
when Jesus Christ arrived, there was a kind of discontinuity. There's always going to be some type of discontinuity here, where in order to remain the same, you have to change, because there's, this is God's plan, and it's not your plan. And you have to recognize that fact, and you have to subject yourself to the Logos incarnate if you want to carry this odyssey, this adventure to its proper conclusion. That's the way I'm planning. That's the way I talk. It's not that I'm planning to do it. I've already talked uh, to, to Muslims this way. It seems to me it's a fruitful way to talk to anybody in the world, which is why I wrote Logos Rising. I wanted, it seems to me, we have the opportunity now through the internet, through the English language, which is the fruit, the good fruit of the wretched American empire, to talk to anybody. But what are we going to talk about? How much does that cost? I'll take three. There's a higher logos than that. I'm not trying to denigrate commerce, it's important, but there's a higher logos, and I wrote Logos Rising to facilitate a conversation that can take place in the world that is already united electronically to the point where you can talk to anybody in the world now. And if you don't understand them, you can have artificial uh, intelligence translations of what they're saying. So I'm not saying that it's obsolete. I'm just saying that it's a new opportunity and we have to have the, uh, I'm trying to provide the vocabulary for this new discussion. That was a long, long explanation, but it was a long, complicated question that you asked. Okay, well, Dr. Jones, it's 6.04. Want to keep going? Yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. Um, uh, Dr. Jones, what are your views on textual criticism of the Bible? I think there was an ideological deformation that took place in the Wellhausen theory. I think that uh, it was uh, uh, a, a kind of pseudo-scientific. Let's, let's back up here. The Germans created historical textual analysis. We have to thank them for it. They got it from Vico. Uh, but uh, but they did do great developments in historical, and I'm a big fan of historical Thomism. I believe in history. I believe that history is the language of God if we learn how to decipher it properly. What is, uh, is reality and what has happened, is, there's a lesson to be learned there, and Vico was one of the first people to understand. Actually, the first person who understood it, that there was, uh, God was involved in history was St. Augustine. And he had to break with the idea of Platonism. All the, both of the great Greeks, uh, Plato and Aristotle, did not understand history. They believed that uh, the world as we know it was chaos and the realm above, at least Plato certainly, the realm above uh, was formed and uh, that was it. No, history is important and Christianity is a historical religion and Jesus Christ is the Lord of history and so we can learn lessons uh, from history. So, but again, you can go to the bridge and you're predestined to go to the bridge and you can tell the woman to go jump or you can, you know, tell her, yeah, he's located down that street there in Bethlehem. Now give me some money so I, because I betrayed Jesus Christ. 
you can always, there's always this temptation. The temptation in Germany at the time was scientism and materialism. And I think it led to a deformation of scriptural, something that is basically good, which is histor the historical critical method. Now, that is something uh, I'm telling you, uh, uh, Islam is not going to survive. The Quran is not going to survive that, that type of analysis. And so I think we need to talk to our Muslim friends about something that will survive the, the collapse of that uh, narrative. All right, next from the Chattering Uncozy, E. Michael Jones, what are your thoughts on priests being ordained who have been married and or have children? Okay, um, there is an exception that's being made now for uh, Episcopalians to come in. Uh, they are married. There, this is a, this is not something that is rooted in the gospel. Okay, there is uh, no. It, it's not like uh, you can't you can't get a dispensation to commit sodomy because sodomy is completely unnatural and it, it you can't do that. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the the idea of celibacy developing over a period of time. Uh, which is a deeper understanding of the evangelical councils, basically to sell everything and follow J uh, Jesus Christ. Now, if you sell everything, you can't provide for your family. And so what you're seeing here is that a married clergy is going to be an intrin intrinsically contradictory. Uh, and the people who found this out very quickly were the Protestants. And so you can read uh, Cobbett's history of uh, the Protestant Reformation, where he talks about basically as soon as the bishops could marry, their primary allegiance was to their children, and they were trying to get preferment to their children, for the children to get them good jobs, get them placed in some type of benefice, and so on and so forth. Now, that's the problem with the married clergy, okay? Now, you can make exceptions. You can bring in a uh, married, uh, married priest, but it's the exception is not the rule. The rule is celibacy, and it's a it's a rule that is not it's not rooted in the in the gospels. It's rooted in the experience of the Catholic Church, uh, and the the experience of understanding that when priests have children, they want to take care of their children. If they want to take care of their children, they're doing it to the detriment of the flock that needs full time a full time uh, a full time uh, pastor. That's the problem with a married clergy. From Doodlebob56 on Cozy, Dr. Jones, what is the best way to buy your books? Go to culturewars.com. You have to go to culturewars.com. You cannot go to Google. You cannot go to Amazon. These are controlled by the Jews to deliberately suppress any type of access to my thought. There's a, an elaborate scheme there to basically make sure that nobody finds out who I am. So go directly to culturewars.com or go directly to uh, fidelitypress.org and buy the books there. Do not buy pirated editions, please. There are plenty of them out there, too. Every time you buy that, you are, de you are, you are destroying my ability to write another book. You have to support the author uh, by buying his books. Don't buy pirated editions and don't go asking the Jew for permission uh, to look me up by going to Google. From Titus Caesar on Cozy, 
Uh, hi, Dr. Jones. Have you heard about the Catholic student, high school student in Ontario, Canada, who was suspended? Yes, yes. I tweeted something about this. Uh, this is a sign of the, first of all, the, the horrendous situation in Canada, uh, but also the horrendous situation in Catholic education, where basically the teachers are now pressured to become commissars uh, to impose political correctness on students who come there for a Catholic education. This is the story of Notre Dame. It's the story of St. Mary's. It's the story, the tragic story of Catholic education, which has chosen to serve uh, Caesar rather than Jesus Christ. Uh, from J Jameser77, Dr. Jones, what's your thought on State of Contests and St. John the 23rd? Uh, no one has done more to promote Sadie Vicantism than Pope Francis, okay? But that being said, uh, it's, it's a dead end. It, 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 it's going nowhere. Uh, it's bad scholarship. Uh, the people who promote this type of stuff have this romance with Pius XII, uh, which is uh, ahistorical and not based on the facts. Uh, I've done a lot of research about the roots of Vatican II. It was Ottaviani, and uh, it was a conservative Italian attempt to preserve Catholic culture in Europe that got derailed by Joseph Ratzinger. So it, it's, bad, it's bad theology based on bad history, based on bad philosophy, so avoid it. From Kingfish AF, uh, are you familiar with the economist Henry George and his belief that the only ethical tax is a tax on land value? Yes. Do tell. Um, to be honest with you, he did not figure largely in my book, uh, Barren Metal. I know, I know his theories. I'd have, I'd have to think more about it. I mean, ta taxation is something that uh, is, is relative. It should, it should not be, it, it, we need a government, but we have a situation where who's going to pay for the government? And one of the worst things that you can have, in my opinion, is an income tax because you're penalizing labor, which is the source of all value. So I knew a, a wealthy man once who said, basically, what you need is a wealth tax and not a, uh, an income tax. So uh, t take... You have somebody like Warren Buffett who pays himself a, a very modest salary because everything that he gets is basically provided for him by the corporations that he has created. So that's just, an, he, he once said that he pays less tax than his secretary. That's some indication of the injustice of a, a, uh, an income tax and I think uh, uh, an indication of the wealth tax would be a better way to raise money. Uh, keep going, Dr. Jones. A couple more. Yeah, a couple more. Make up for last week. All right. Um, Gluacon, uh, I think he's asking you this uh, on Cozy. Did the Catholic Church really, quote, force the Jews, end quote, to do usury? I thought they forced them to not do usury. No one forced the Jew to do usury. <clears throat> the situation was basically that uh, usury was prohibited to Christians. The Jews were tolerated. The Jews were never citizens in these Christian countries. You could not be a citizen up until the time of Napoleon. Napoleon was the first one who broke that. 
So they were aliens, and as aliens, they uh, were involved in things that uh, decent people would not do. And so it would be, you know, uh, production of liquor, uh, pornography, pimping, uh, and usury, which is right up there with all of these asocial things. Now, the problem came uh, when, because of the prince, the prince allowed Jewish privilege. Jewish privilege meant you could come into my realm and you can set up your usury operation because what you're going to do is lend me money at a low rate of interest. And for that, I will allow you to gouge the ordinary citizen with your usual interest, which was began at 43 and a third percent per year. That invariably led to social conflict. Uh, and when the, the usury burden got intolerable, the people rose up, and then the prince was forced at this point to expel the Jews. Otherwise, he was going to have a revolution on his hand. So no one forced the Jew to do this. Uh, the Jews saw an opportunity uh, because of the Christian prohibition of usury, and he did it uh, avidly and willingly. No one forced him to do it. Why would you force someone... You don't have to force a Jew to make money hand over fist, which is what he does with compound interest. All right, and one more? Yeah. All right, uh, from, this is a good question from uh, Telegram, from R. McAwful. Question. Um, I know you're not a DNA determinist, but what role do genes play in our lives? Are they not given to us by God to make us good at certain things? Yes, of course they are. Of course they are. And I will give you, I will make you a, a case, I will give you the case for uh, genetic uh, determinism. And it, uh, I think uh, alcoholism uh, is determined by genetics. They've done uh, studies of twins that were raised separately and both uh, have the tendency toward alcoholism. I think you inherit, uh, al you, first of all, you don't inherit alcoholism. You inherit a metabolism from your parents and that metabolism will process alcohol in various ways, depending on the metabolism. And some people will find that, uh, it, it, you know, they take one drink and fall asleep. Other people will find they can drink, and the more they drink, the more excited they get. And the more inhibitions they lose, and they start dancing around with their pants rolled up and a lampshade on their head. That is determined. That's determined by God. It's determined by, by the metabolism that you have. That's DNA at work. Okay, now, where does, does that mean we're determined to act in a certain way? No, because you can either pick up the drink or you cannot pick up the drink. And some groups like AA will say that if you have this predisposition and you ended up in trouble, you will never be able to drink. Okay, you, you won't be able to do it because you, you have a metabolism that will immediately get out of control. So you're going to have to be abstinent, uh, abstain from alcohol for your entire life. But you can do it one day at a time, and after a while you won't have the craving anymore, and so it's not that bad. The analogy here, as I've tried to bring up many times, is with uh, homosexuality. Okay, There are people who tell you that they were created by God as homosexuals. That's completely false. That's completely wrong. You don't inherit a homosexual metabolism from your parents. You, you have a, 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 a sexual constitution that was created by God, and what happened is what I've already talked about earlier in this program 
uh, with Pete Buttigieg is that it gets short-circuited uh, during the early years of life if you feel that your father uh, is not paying attention to you. If, you. if you're not getting the attention that you want and deserve, the love that you want and deserve from your father, you will feel deprived. It's called father deprivation. And at a certain point, you come along and there will be predatory homosexuals, older homosexuals, who will sexualize that by seducing these, these boys. That's how this cycle goes on and on. It's like one vampire biting another vampire, creating another vampire. That is not DNA. I've already given you two examples here of where it applies and where it does not apply. And I think with that in mind, I think you can figure out uh, that your life, your, your life is, even if you have this predisposition to alcoholism, uh, which you inherited from your parents, your life is not determined by that because you have free will and you can choose to act in a certain way and you can choose to drink and get drunk or you can choose not to drink and you can lead a better life as a result. All right. Thank, um, you. Thank you very much. I uh, missed the uh, exchange of questions last week, tried to make up for a little bit this week. Always enjoy these discussions. We'll see you uh, a week from today. Inshallah. Inshallah. All right, just quick, quick announcements on my end. Uh, episode 12 is not on Arcozy, um on the replays because it had a bit of an audio problem, but it's thrown on all of our other platforms. Check out our other platforms if you want to see last week's episode, you guys, and Cozy. Um, obviously, subscribe to Telegram if you're not subscribed. Subscribe to Cozy. Subscribe to our Twitter, everything else. Magazine on CultureWars.com. Books at FidelityPress.org. And then for our last word, Dr. Jones, could you, shill? could you advertise the Home Alone book just a bit? Yeah, Home Alone is the article that I wrote about Pete Buttigieg. It's available at CultureWars.com. It'll give you the background that we didn't, weren't able to go into today in our discussion. There you are. All right, guys. We'll see you all next week. God bless. Domestic partners can't be denied their rights no more. We had sex on the men's room floor at the rest stop on Route 294. So you can put me in your 401k4. Cruising men's rooms lets me make all kinds of friends. But domestic partners are more than just friends in the end. Ten a night seems about right. I foresee domestic benefits galore if they all put me in their 401k4. Yeah, baby, won't you put me in your 401k4. Domestic partners can't be denied their rights no more. We had sex on the men's room floor at the rest stop on Route 294. So you can put me in 